what I'm going to do here is introduce this. It's, I'm going to try to unfold uh, the issue of scriptures and their uses, uh, take you to some places, raise a few issues, uh, and a few questions, and that's it. <laughs> you can think about them. Uh, no, it's meant to be, be an introduction to the, uh, to the topic, a way to look at it, try to offer you a way to try to look at something that's very familiar. As Christians, of course, we use the scriptures. Uh, but what are we doing? You don't have to know what you're doing to use them well, but people use them all the time, and we use them in ways which sometimes are confusing or contradictory. What are we up to? Sometimes we use them and wonder, I wonder whether that was right. Uh, so what I have here are a few considerations about scripture, the scriptures and their uses. Yeah, in many ways, in, on many occasions, Christians, in effect, or maybe in so many words, claim to use the scriptures. This happens, to cite a few obvious examples, whenever a preacher says the text for the sermon is. This happens whenever a congregation holds Bible classes. This happens whenever someone defends a position by saying, as the Bible says. And whenever such things happen, we are entitled to expect the scriptures to be used properly. But of course, expectations are not always met. When a, the meaning a preacher derives from a sermon seems contrived, when a Bible study seems to care more about what participants think about what the Bible says than what the author meant, or when a proof text seems irrelevant, we might wonder or even doubt whether the claim is being taken seriously. Naturally, such things should not happen, and we should take care in our lives to use the scriptures responsibly. But what does that mean? What does it mean to use the scriptures responsibly? It's easy to offer examples of responsible and irresponsible uses, but it's harder to explain in much detail a more general notion of responsible use. To me, it seems so hard that I have to admit that I really have no idea how to develop this explanation systematically and comprehensively. In fact, I've been tempted to think, why bother at all, even with a partial explanation? Aren't there enough, and important enough, discrete problems uh, in our conscious, deliberate, everybody knows what you mean, uses of the Bible? Wouldn't it be enough to worry about the relationship between Scripture and preaching, Scripture and doctrine, Scripture and our dealings with questions and problems? Well, there certainly is something to this, but even if people agree, for instance, that the scriptures are inspired and inerrant, that they're authoritative and clear, they can produce very different sermons, very different doctrines, very different answers and positions. How do we account for these differences? That question is important, too, and moreover, the answer to that question, whatever it may be, is actually a move toward a more general notion of responsible use. So, in my time, I want to uh, convey a couple of basic ways to think about the scriptures and their uses. And I'll proceed in two ways. One, from a very general notion about scripture and uses, and then uh, another way by considering just a single instance of where the Bible probably should be used well, but in my view isn't and uh, we'll ask about what it might mean to do better. Anyhow, uh, much talk about the uses of Scripture assumes that we are the users. 
If, however, we confess the Scriptures to be God's Word, then we should regard God as the primary user of the Scriptures. We should not do this, moreover, only or primarily to make sure that we ask ourselves, what does God intend with this or that passage? Although that is an important question and one that Tim Seleska will deal with in his presentation. No, regarding God as the primary uses of the Scriptures means first that we orient ourselves to God's use of the writings we call the Scriptures. This means asking, how do the writings we call Scripture fit into God's economy? That is, into God's dealings with creation. We should seek to answer then in terms of God's economy, in terms of God's activity in the world. What are the Scriptures and what use does God make of them? So this is one basic consideration for thinking about the uses of the scriptures. With an adequate account, we can deal confidently and coherently with basic questions about the canon, about the nature of scriptural authority, about interpretation, and about the application or the relevance of the scriptures. But having acknowledged that God is the primary user of the scriptures and knowing how basic a clear understanding of his uses is, we should reflect on our own uses. Our uses of the scriptures, of course, matter. We are users. But how should we think about our uses? We could speak in terms of activities, as St. Paul does in 2 Timothy 3. All scripture is breathed out by God, and it is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for, creation, for correction, and for training in righteousness. Or we could speak about occasions when it is necessary, or at least usual, to use the scriptures, such as in formulating doctrine, articulating a theological position, delivering a sermon. Or we could approach things in a still more general way. This approach might start by asking about the definition of scripture. After all, we're talking about using scripture, but what is a scripture? When we call something scripture, what are we doing? One might answer, a scripture is an inspired writing. It is a word from God. That, I would confess, is true, but as I hinted at earlier, this characterization might not be very helpful. I think this definition is more helpful. A scripture is an authoritative writing. What do we mean by authoritative? Well, we might mean several things, but let's try this out. An authoritative writing is one that authorizes something. This is what's going on when we sing, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. The scriptures authorize us to know Jesus loves us. This is going on when we say, Lord, remember us in your kingdom and teach us to pray our Father who art in heaven. The scriptures authorize us to pray to the God of Jesus Christ as our Father. This is what is going on when St. Paul says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, Everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. The same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. 
for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. According to Paul, the scriptures authorize us to believe that those who confess that Jesus is Lord, who believe that God raised him from the dead, will be saved. So, with this notion of scripture, we might say that we use scripture as scripture when we use it to authorize something, and we use scripture responsibly when we use it for purposes and ends it authorizes. And what are those purposes and ends? Those that God, as the primary user of the scripture, has. Now, at this point, it's easy to imagine some questions and concerns. Someone might ask, Yes, I can see that a so-called scripture authorizes one to do something. Uh, but you don't say, what makes a writing scripture? You need an account of that. And please don't tell me, I just have to take it on faith. Another person might say, it seems that there are differences in how the scriptures are construed. Your second example treats the scripture passage as a record of what Jesus did, and it is Jesus who really authorizes prayer to our Father. Your third example, however, is clearly using scripture passages differently, although exactly how, I'm not sure. In any case, don't you have to attend to issues of interpretation? A third person might note, anybody can say that this scripture authorizes me to say or do that, but simply citing scripture or claiming scriptural backing is not enough. Don't you have to be concerned with how you relate scripture to your claims, to your findings, to your positions? These, these are questions that need to be addressed. The first one about what makes something scripture is a question about the canon, a question about canonicity. Canonical questions need to be addressed. These are the kinds of questions raised by Bart Ehrman, Elaine Pagels, Dan Brown in recent years. And to this we might add questions about the relationship between the Old Testament and the New Testament, between the homologumina and the antilogomena, between the creeds and confessions of the church and the canonical scriptures. Now the second question is about interpretation. Hermeneutical questions need to be addressed. Going back to my example, Using the words of Jesus recorded by an evangelist or using the words of a prophet should conform to some principles and rules concerning interpretation. Hermeneutical questions, in, moreover, involve more than individual readers and particular texts, but also include the communities that form readers and the practices that shape not only how they read, but also how they deal with differences and problems and our presentations later will deal with some of these. And the third question is about relevance or about applying the scriptures. Questions about how scriptures may be relevant to an issue, a claim, a position, need to be addressed. For example, what does it mean, if anything, to have, a biblical, to have biblical principles of stewardship or leadership? Or what should one make of the use of scriptures in such popular books as The Prayer of Jabez or The Purpose Driven Life? Now, all of this is only to outline issues and to raise questions. We might stop here and spend a few minutes exploring some answers, but with the time I have left, I want to do something else. First, I told you I was going to give you some issues and questions. 
First, I would like to note a few points, four to be exact, that emerge from what I was saying earlier about Scripture being an authoritative writing. So my first point is simply that the Scriptures authorize us in the first place to take their message seriously. Our uses of the Scriptures are not limited to offer the authorizing something we think or we wonder about. As authoritative, the Scriptures authorize belief and obedience to what they say and what they call for. Second, it makes sense also to think that the scriptures will raise questions and spark the imagination. That is, they will comprise a key source for problems that will need to be dealt with and proposals that will need to be tested. I was reading my Bible last night and it struck me that. Sums up an experience that a great many have had. For example, yesterday, as I listened to David Adams in chapel work his way through Malachi 2 and his denunciation of intermarriage and divorce, and as he ticked off passages, one after the other, that made the same point. Genesis 24, Exodus 34, Deuteronomy 7, Joshua 23, Ezra, Nehemiah. It struck me, not for the first time, but yet again, that surely Matthew must have been making a point in his genealogy by including Tamar, not, say, Rebecca or Leah or Rachel, by including Rahab, the prostitute from Jericho, and Ruth, the Moabitess, and the, the wife of Uriah the Hittite. And that point would say something about the identity and the mission of Jesus, about the significance of his death and his resurrection, about the nature of the Christian mission, and the content of Christian hope. Now, of course, any intuition like that needs to be justified, and scriptures are decisive in determining this. But my point, an obvious one I grant, but one I don't want to ignore, is that scriptures as authoritative writings will naturally, will of their nature, engender questions to be answered and proposals to be assessed. And if this is the case, and this is my third point, then churches, which should be the most important context in which the scriptures are used, should pay attention to the ways in which they use the scriptures. Why? Well, their use of the scriptures will do a lot to form and inform the ways in which individual members do so. And fourth, we might ask about scriptures in ways they do not seem to authorize. Speaking of Scripture as authorizing something suggests a way to understand such things as allegorizing or using a passage as a pretext. I take it that most of us have, say, heard a sermon that didn't follow the text, maybe preached one, although it did convey something that other parts of the Scriptures could have been used to authorize. I've heard such sermons called biblical but not textual. Something similar seems to be happening with some of our pericopes. And perhaps one might say something similar of the catechism's use of the third commandment about the Sabbath day. Observant of the Sabbath, as the large catechism acknowledges, has been abrogated, but the catechism retains the text of the commandment for a different purpose, namely for hearing and keeping the word of God. These uses might be called non-authoritative uses of the scriptures. Not necessarily wrong, but something to pay attention to. All right. But finally, 
I'd like to consider briefly what might be called good use of the scriptures. What we have been discussing revolved around what might be called acceptable uses of the scriptures. But sometimes Christians are looking for, or they would benefit from, good answers, not just correct ones. For example, earlier I acknowledged the definition of a scripture as an inspired writing as true. But I, I opted for an answer which I consider more helpful. In other words, better. What am I up to? Well, I can suggest what I mean in a limited way, and I want to stress in a limited way by working through an example. Uh, my example comes from the uh, explanation to the small catechism, the explanation in what we often refer to as the synodical catechism. Under the section for the first commandment, we find this question and answer. Who is the only true God? Answer. The only true God is the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, three distinct persons in one divine being, the Holy Trinity. I take it that this is the kind of thing for which one should expect a good biblical answer, one that makes sense, one that is clear. Well, I would say that this answer is doctrinally correct. I'm a Christian. Uh, but it's hard to defend as a good biblical answer. For one thing, this answer does not look much like anything that is said in the scriptures. And the proof of this consists of the proof text cited by the explanation. There is Numbers 6, 24 through 26, the Lord bless you and keep you. There's Deuteronomy 6, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. There's Matthew 28, go and make disciples baptizing. There's 1 Corinthians 8, there is no God but one. And there's 2 Corinthians 3, 14, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Now, someone might respond, those aren't meant as proof text. They are meant to show that the one God is the Trinity. Those are passages in which we should see God as triune, as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. I would answer that first, that is wishful thinking. And second, that if it were the case, it makes matters even less clear. In 1 Corinthians 8, God is the Father, not the Trinity, as verse 6 makes clear. For us, there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom all exist. And if we substitute Father, Son, and Holy Spirit for God in uh, the apostolic blessing, the result is confusion. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. But another reason for finding it hard to call a good biblical answer is that the direct source for this answer is not the scriptures at all, but the Athanasian Creed, which confesses that the Catholic faith is that we worship one God in Trinity and the Trinity in unity, neither confusing the persons nor dividing the substance. The Athanasian Creed is biblical in the sense that it reflects what the Bible says about the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. But its point is not to identify the God of Christians, not to answer the question, who is the one true God? But as this creed says explicitly, to say how anyone who wants to be saved should think about the Trinity, or, put more formally, to outline the correct doctrine about God. 
It troubles me, and it should trouble you, that this answer ignores this basic fact. It troubles me more, however, that the most plausible reason for this answer is that the question was not taken as a serious one, and as a result, a hard-to-understand and difficult-to-defend answer was given. So in terms of using the scriptures, my first suggestion is try to take questions seriously. Seriously. If the synodical catechism can have trouble with this, then you might too. Of course, at this point, it's also reasonable to expect someone to tell me, put up or shut up. And don't just give me a better answer. Tell me why it is better. All right, I've been asking for it. I do have reservations about the approach of the explanation to explain the faith. I think it would be better to follow Luther's advice and pick up a larger catechism, but that would just be avoiding the issue, especially in this case because the format really is not an obstacle. So in proposing a better answer to the question, uh, I should note first that there are several obvious candidates, such as the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, or I am who I am, or the God of Israel. These are just different names for the same God, but they are not the same answer, and none of them is what I would propose. I would say, who is the only true God? The only true God is the God and Father of Jesus Christ, by which we mean he is the God whom Jesus called God and Father, and he is the God who sent Jesus. Proof text? And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son. Jesus on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now, the answer itself suggests some follow-up questions, such as, who is Jesus Christ? A logical answer here is, Jesus is the Son of God. That is, he is the one whom God called his Son. So you might turn to the account of Jesus' baptism or that of his transfiguration, where God says, this is my Son. And in turn, uh, this suggests dealing with the question, why did God send Jesus? for which appropriate answers might be summed up under the headings to make God known and to act for God. Now, we could go on in this vein, and sometime I will, but let's not lose sight of the question here and the issue that prompted into looking at the question. That issue, once again, is what makes a good for a good use of the scriptures? And the test question that we started with is, who is the only true God? The answer I suggested is that God is the God and Father of Jesus Christ, which means the God whom Jesus called God and Father and the God who sent Jesus. Now, why is this better? One reason is that it's easy to show that it comes from the scriptures. Relevant proof texts are not always easy to find. That is sometimes a function of the question or issue and sometimes a function of the answer. In this case, the problems lie with the answer. The explanation's answer led to confusing and question-begging scriptural support. More than this, however, my suggested answer and its use of the scriptures lend themselves to 
further use of the scriptures along the same lines. I went from a question about the identity of the true God to questions about the identity and the mission of Jesus Christ, and the kinds of answers and scriptural support followed logically. On this basis, here's another suggestion for what I'll call good use. Use the scriptures in ways that let you continue to use the scriptures in the same ways. Of course, mere formal consistency is not enough. What else? Looking again at my suggested answer, I would point out that it also fits our basic convictions about Jesus Christ. For Christians, God is truly and fully known in and through Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ is God's eternal Son. What does it, what the Son mean for the world? God acts decisively and eternally in and through him. To what end? So that all who believe in him might have eternal life. The questions and answers I, uh, I picked up on reflect these convictions. And you might say that they, up, they uphold the Christocentricity of the Christian faith, Christian message, and scriptures. But they uphold this Christ-centeredness in a particular way. My questions and answers are not extensive enough to see this fully, but I have already laid out briefly his identity and mission. Going in this direction, then, we can see that he suffers and dies because those he came to rejected his identity and his mission, and in his resurrection, God vindicated Jesus as his son and vindicated Jesus and his works. The risen Lord then appoints apostles to continue his mission, to proclaim the coming of God's kingdom, to call people to repentance, to forgive sins, to make disciples, to urge faithful lives. In short, the Christ-centeredness I am proposing is centered on a particular story of God and his dealings with creation. It is not centered, for instance, on a, a proposition, even the proposition that justification is uh, by grace through faith nor is it centered in certain results or experiences. Or to put it more briefly, a good use of the scriptures will be consistent with a certain basic story of God and his dealings with creation, especially in and through Jesus Christ. This does not exclude the Old Testament, but it does make the Old Testament old. That is, it puts it in a certain place and gives the story of Israel a certain interpretation. At this point, too, we could return to the first point in this presentation, namely that we should regard God as the primary user of the scriptures, and in this way, uh, regard the scriptures themselves. In other words, in this light, we might ask, what are they and what are they for? And here's an answer to that. God uses the scriptures to tell his story, a story about him and his dealings with creation, particularly, definitively, in and through Jesus Christ. That is what they are about, and they are for leading people to turn from their false ways, to acknowledge Jesus as his Son and as the Lord, and look forward to life with God and his people through Christ and in the Spirit. If we were to ask about Jesus further, we would see that he regards himself as the fulfillment of the Old Testament, and we can see at least the beginnings of how the New Testament canon would come to be. And just to make one last point, picking up on this claim about the importance of the story, I agree that a basic rule of interpretation is letting Scripture interpret Scripture. But that rule can, as one might say, cover a multitude of sins. 
But what I've just said suggests that we focus attention on scriptural summaries of its stories. We give attention to places like Deuteronomy, or Psalm 136, or Nehemiah 9, all of which summarize the story. These are instances of scripture interpreting scripture. So are the Magnificat and the Benedictus in Luke 1, and the preaching in Acts. Well, that's all the time I have, or almost all the time. I've tried to lay out some basic issues and concerns for the uses of the scriptures. Using the Bible is so basic to our lives as Christians that it's easy to take the Bible and our ways of using it for granted. But that can be risky. Indeed, success will really only come as the Lord grants it. Which leads me to point out one last thing that should go into our uses of the scriptures. Prayer. And with that, let us pray. Blessed Lord, who has caused all holy scriptures to be written for our learning, grant that we may in such wise hear them, read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest them, that by patience and comfort of thy holy word, we may embrace and ever hold fast the blessed hope of everlasting life, which thou hast given us in our Savior Jesus Christ, who liveth and reigneth with thee and the Holy Ghost, ever one God, world without end. Amen. Thank you very much.